4: It's The Wonky Show. We're talking Nicola Sturgeon's resignation, student engagement and the graduate route.
2: It's all coming up. So one of the things that's really interesting and is starting to happen is that um, particularly women who want to work in term time, who might in previous years have become things like teaching assistants are now not becoming teaching assistants because they can earn just as much money working remotely during term time between the hours of nine and three, and then they can pick up their kids. So there is definitely something about the accessibility of work, which is, you know, reasonably well-paid, that actually does now make it quite attractive to students and indeed some adults in the workplace as well. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your
4: weekly way into this week's higher education news policy analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and here to unpack the red box of HE policy this week are three fabulous guests, as always. In Oxfordshire, it's Mary Colonel Cook, chair of the UPP Student Futures Commission and other things. Mary, you're hired the week, please.
5: Uh, so my son Rory was home last weekend for his birthday. Um, so my highlight was seeing his little eyes light up when I presented him with his Colin the Caterpillar birthday cake. Uh, Rory just turned 32, by the way. I was going to say, I think I've made this.
4: sad. <laughs> <laughs> He's a grown-up.
5: He's a grown-up, and he still loves Colin the cat Cassbiller.
4: Uh, and in Westminster, is Jonathan Simon's partner and head of education practice
2: at Public First. Jonathan, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, morning, all. I think my highlight is also a child-related highlight. My, my son is slightly younger than 32, uh, but I watched him play football over the weekend, and he scored his first goal, so that was wonderful. In Bournemouth, it's Sunday, Blake, at Wonky's
4: Association. So, Sunday, your highlight of the week?
0: My highlight of the week was that I went to the Surrealism exhibition at the Design Museum, and it's really, really good. And um, I was in there for about three hours, and everyone should go. Fascinating. Uh, and I awarded myself
4: a one this week, which is uh, season three of Star Trek Picard back on streaming services. Um, very excited. Just spun out this morning. Um, so, that's my evening taken care of. Right. We start the week with Nicholas Sturgeon's Resignation uh came out of nowhere. Mary, what's going on?
5: Well, I think she took everyone by surprise uh with her resignation and whatever you think of her, um, her very personal leadership of the Scottish Independence Cause, um, I think everyone would agree that she's a pretty impressive politician. and um, perhaps that's because she's been in office for eight years and was eight years as deputy first minister before that. Definitely more time to get good at it uh, than the 49 days. And I don't think there's a Scottish lettuce available that could outlive Nicola for for sure. Um, I actually thought her speech was um, quite well worth reading in full. I I thought it was a masterclass in what you might call sort of professional authenticity. She she really is a class act um, to the last. But uh, what will have caught wonky aficionado's eyes though, was her claim, actually the first claim of her achievements during her time of office. And she said, uh, young people from deprived backgrounds have never had a better chance of going to university than now. And that claim, I think, is true insofar as the proportion of students from quintile one of the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation, uh, which is the most deprived quintile, um, uh, accepted in 2022 was 17 percent up seven percentage points since 2015 uh that's a 70 percent increase or 700 additional students from deprived areas Um, and by the way that's just the UCAS data so more will have been admitted through the um the articulation arrangements with colleges um it is a welcome achievement but it takes place in a particular context in scotland Scotland's definitely got some quite punchy policies for equalities and widening access, establishing the Commission on Widening Access in, I think, 2014, and also gender action plans to even up gender disparities by subjects in Scottish universities. But of course, those policies exist in the context of the apparently generous free tuition regime, but also with uh, capped recruitment for Scottish students at Scottish universities um, that the government needs to use in order to control their expenditure obviously and obviously if you cap recruitment at levels below the actual demand for higher education it means that you know every extra young man recruited is at the expense of a young woman or every extra student from a deprived background is at the expense of one from a more affluent background and to make the point last summer apparently every single place allotted to scottish applicants um, to study law at edinburgh was given to students, um, flagged for deprivation, etc. Um, uh, not a single successful applicant from more affluent areas for that course, apparently. Um, the regime in general and the funding arrangements in particular mean that Scottish domiciled undergraduates are less attractive to Scottish universities than applicants from the rest of the UK and international so, uh, entry rates and placed rates for all Scottish students in Scotland are actually lower than in other parts of the UK, which I think uh, sort of nota bene for, for those who are against tuition fees and and also for advocates for number capping in England.
4: Well, as thanks as a, as a very helpful summary, I think um, I mean Jonathan. It's fair to say that that cap system and the and the free tuition policy um is, 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 has been growing increasingly un, unpopular in Scottish universities right
2: yeah it's 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 wildly unpopular in 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 most scottish universities for for fairly obvious reasons given that uh you know they can neither recruit as many students as they want nor cover the full economic cost of each student that does come um i have to say i've 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 long been of the view that the scottish policy is a sort of salutary warning to the english system i know the scottish system is very proud of it and contrasts it with the sort of neoliberal horror that happens south of Hadrian's wall but i was talking to a scottish vice chancellor the other day and they were saying you know for all the all the debate in england about should we introduce student number controls to at least in part help manage the unit of resource of course in scotland they have a declining unit of resource and student number controls so you see all these sort of weird cross border flows when we have scottish students going down to english universities of course, in Northern Ireland, you have issues with kind of capping numbers as well. So you have Scottish students flowing to Northern Ireland. You have Republic of Ireland students who can sort of flow into Scotland. You get all these sort of really weird, perverse incentives being driven by fee caps and structures. And ultimately, you know, the the the, the handful of very, very high quality universities that are in Scotland that could be doing uh, better in terms of recruiting not just more deprived students, but students generally, are sort of doing so with, with one hand behind their back by the Scottish government.
4: Yeah, 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 and and also the the question of international students becoming increasingly vexed in in, in Scotland, and that um, because of the uh, the cap system, uh, universities recruiting more international students, um, and that's creating all sorts of capacity issues and, and other other problems on campus.
5: Yeah, it's a classic um, example, isn't it, of um, policy versus politics? Because the 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 politics, the optics of having free tuition is is very popular isn't it and it's only for people who understand the intricacies that can that can see what what damage it's doing to to scottish universities and arguably to scottish students wanting to stay in scotland to study
4: yeah and i mean we've got uh, the the other thing going on here is uh is in the independence i mean as we're talking as sort of barrels of ink being spilt um you can sort of see it before 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 your screens and uh, all about you know how this means the end of uh, Scottish Universal, a big setback for um, for independence movement, which again is something that um, I think many Scottish university leaders would be would be pleased to see, just in terms of the you know for the disruption that uh, another referendum and or you know separation of the United Kingdom would, would potentially cause. But there is something else going on here, isn't there? Which is a sort of generational shifts in Scottish.
2: Uh, politics well across the uk but it's quite stark isn't it in i think one of the things she has managed to do remarkably well and 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 she has you know by by modern standards had an incredibly long-standing and successful run at the very top of politics one of the things she's done very well is brought together quite a disparate grouping of people under the banner of independence so the snp members Span, you know, from the sort of traditional left far through to the traditional right, you have people who are in favour of low taxes, people who are in favour of high taxes, people who are in favour of a fairly traditionalist English style education system, people who are in favour of a much more progressive system. But they all manage to unite behind first Alex Hammond and, and now Nicola Sturgeon in the cause of independence. But if you're the Labour Party now, in particular, you must be rubbing your hands with glee at this because I think it's very hard to see anyone who will take over, who will manage to hold that broad coalition together. The SNP are defending a huge number of Westminster seats, most of them against the Labour Party. I think pre, pre the announcement this week of her standing down, the general consensus has been that they might lose a handful of them, but would, would more or less hold on. If another leader you know, manages to ship, let's say, 20 seats to Labour in the election... That makes a huge, huge difference to the national picture, and and could well be the difference between a you know a minority Labour government or a small majority versus a quite comfortable majority Labour government.
4: What happens to HE funding and and policy is, is even in that scenario is, is actually really un- uncertain, isn't it? I mean, it would be very difficult for Labour to introduce tuition fees in Scotland, um, but but if they did take power in Scotland, you, you, you'd kind of you kind of see the opportunity to do a kind of UK wide. Approach. I mean, there's already been talk about how you know what happens if labour wants to do something like a graduate tax in England, for example, it's going to have huge implications uh, for 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 Scotland. Um, it would be a lot cleaner to do it in the round, right?
2: right. but but, of course, you have the issue that because the because it's devolved, you have this kind of incredibly clunky English votes or English laws convention, and that that the speaker has to rule on. And you have to think if you are a newly elected Labour MP in Scotland, you probably don't think you've got political capital to push through massive reform. So I think you would be saying to Keir Starmer and, and, and Number 10 in this instance, you, know, you can do what you want in England, please don't touch it in Scotland, I've only just been elected and I'll probably lose my seat. But then you also get the issue of, let's assume Starmer has a, a 20 seat majority and has 15 Scottish MPs do they do what they are probably constitutionally meant to, which is abstain from an English decision on English HE reform, uh, or, or do they oppose it, uh, or do they get whipped through it? And, and, and none of those are good outcomes for Labour, but it does actually make it quite hard to make even English-wide changes if you have a significant Scottish bloc.
4: Yes, well, although the, yeah, tax is not a devolved matter, so um, you know, if, if, if you were to purely change, change the tax system uh, to use it uh, to fund universities essentially then you could you could sort of skirt around some of those i mean it would obviously raise constitutional questions without doubt but you could skirt around some of those some of those political problems you
2: you, you could yes that's an i hadn't i hadn't thought about it from that perspective yes that's a that's a very interesting way of thinking about it um i mean it causes <laughs> almost more issues than it solves but yes it would it would get around the kind of the issue of of, of constitutionality yes
5: but isn't it the case that um mm-hmm. fees and funding for universities, whether North of the border or south is very unlikely to be, kind of on the top five or ten things that any incoming government, whatever its majority or otherwise, is is going to be. I mean, it's no longer education, education, education. It's the economy, the economy, the economy, isn't it, for the next foreseeable future?
4: Yeah, you'd thought so. But yeah, the question is, I guess, how, just how long does it, you know, the current status quo can last with declining unit of resource? Um, you know, university finances, particularly in Scotland, are under under stress. I think is the the, t- the technical um, <laughs> uh, banking term.
2: And and I think you know, La- Labour uh, UK wide have the fundamental issue of they are still technically committed, of course, to, to abolition of all fees across the whole of the UK. Um, I think I think it is, shall we say, deeply implausible that that will be their manifesto commitment. Um, so they are going to have to say something. You know, it's not going to be top of the list of what they want to do. Within the DFE if they get in, but I think it's it's also going to be almost impossible for them to go through a five year parliament without doing something about it in England and indeed in Scotland. It's interesting because I was just reflecting obviously Nicholas Sturgeon's a, a, a Glasgow uh, alumna, and I remember i I spoke once in the in the Glasgow University Union, which is equivalent of the you know the Oxford Union or the Covid Union. I have never spoken in a more intimidating atmosphere, the kind of the i mean the the bare pit of that chamber when you are having you know 500 600 people in there howling you down um it is an incredibly difficult atmosphere and i think there is something in the fact that of course on the one hand if you can get through that that is good grounding for getting to the top because she would have fought off huge amounts of abuse and misogyny even as a student politician but it also does it does inculcate in you right from the beginning an ethos of, of that's how you do politics it is it is aggressive it is loud it is incredibly masculine um, and it does it does lend itself to a certain kind of person who gets to the top of it
4: well it's a chicken in the egg question isn't it i mean it's you know it, that that's kind of by design isn't it in the in the westminster the, the westminster model and uh are we producing uh people who uh thrive in that environment or are we perpetuating it uh is the um it's been is a i think a debate's going to run and run um Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week.
3: Hi, I'm Emily Owen, and this week on Wonky, I've been blogging about the employment of recent graduates into the professional services. Every year, universities see talented and skilled graduates leave the campus, perhaps the sector's very own version of brain drain. In the blog, I suggest that employing recent graduates into the professional services might offer the remedy to some of the HR headaches the sector is facing. These include age diversity and the loss of thought and experience diversity that comes with the absence of a younger demographic. The levelling up agenda also gets a mention, with the offering at universities, from finance to HR to policy and everything in between, being a way to keep graduates local. I also look at the regulatory pressure around student outcomes and how universities may do well by looking closer to home when it comes to graduate careers. The skilled, enthusiastic, and workplace-ready students that universities graduate each year may well be a market they're missing out on.
4: Now, um, a new survey is out, uh, the UK Engagement Survey from Advance HE. Jonathan, walk us through the highlights, please.
2: That's right, yes, there's a a new survey, as you say, that's come out from Advance HE, which is on uh, the UK Engagement Survey. Um, and on the face of it, it's it's pretty good news. It shows that people's engagement with university, whether that's through their course or through the engagement with other students or with staff, um, is at quite high levels. So 47% of uh, people who responded said that they work with other students uh, quite often. 44% of people who responded said they work with staff quite often. Um, not that many students are thinking about dropping out. Um, and generally speaking, it's it's a very positive picture. And certainly that's the way that, um, that Advance HE are badging it. I think one of the issues, and, and, they, and they do say this in a survey, but I think nevertheless it is worth bearing out, is that of course what they're trying to do is compare how students are now engaged compared to 2015. And some of the headline figures um, suggest that there's been an increase in, for example, the number of students caring. That's almost, it's more than doubled from 18% in 2015 to 37% in 2022. And similarly, they make the argument that the number of students undertaking paid work has increased very, very significantly, from 43% up to 59%. But the difficulty is, without being a sort of survey research monkey nerd about this, is that they haven't controlled or waited for the similar sample. So the sample of people who uh, who were asked in 2015 is not the same as the sample who was asked in 2022. The 2022 sample, there's fewer of them, and they are much older. And you would expect, all other things being equal, that older students are more likely to be in paid work, are more likely to have caring responsibilities. So I think we have to take the narrative that some things have increased or decreased with a pinch of salt. I don't think we can use the longitudinal data. But we can nevertheless say that in 2022, students appear to be uh, relatively well engaged and given the discourse that we've had over the past couple of years about, you know, people feeling uh, depressed and wanting to drop out, and, and obviously the huge amount of work that's been done with Wonky on the theme of belonging, this seems to tell a relatively positive picture.
4: Yes, there's a lot here, isn't there, Mary? It's, 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 it's a slight shame about the, the methodog- methodological um, changes in the, in the survey making it hard to compare, but there is, as Jonathan says, some interesting things to pull out of it.
5: Yeah, I was actually a bit surprised. I mean, even as you say, leaving aside um, whether the data is reliable or not, I was surprised at some of the findings because what I've been hearing around the sector is that there's still very poor attendance at lectures, tutorials, classes, etc. And of course, you might expect that also to be true if, as the survey says, more students are needing to work and are commuter students or, or have caring responsibilities. Um. Everything I've heard also points to students wanting to make regular use of the ability to engage online, as well as, or sometimes instead of, but um, mostly both. Um, uh, You know, to 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 kind of mix and match in person with online. Uh, I not can't remember whether the report distinguishes between physical and digital. But I, actually, I thought Jim's column this morning on Wonky does a good job at pointing out some of the statistical ambiguities which might make this survey less reliable and critically, I think, less comparable with the previous surveys, which I think covered many more students and many more universities. But the one thing that really caught my eye was um the reported much higher levels of partnership working with staff than during any other year since the beginning of the survey. I think it was about forty four percent saying, they'd been encouraged to collaborate with with staff often or very often and this kind of echoes back to a key finding from the UPP Foundation Student Futures Commission that I chaired last year that during the pandemic students had really appreciated working much more collaboratively with university staff and, and academics um, and that this gave them a, a strong sense of agency and I think increased that sense of belonging to their institution um there was a sort of shift from just consulting and and the surveys of students to actually co-creation and co-production of solutions and actions and plans with them um you know students wanted to be talked to not talked at so i thought that was really interesting um but overall as i said i was a bit surprised that this was so positive because it doesn't tally with what i've been hearing on the ground but maybe others have got more up-to-date info than me
4: well so it's a it sort of sits adjacent, doesn't it, to the belonging work that, that we did i mean there are some there are some there are some ways that it, it's they, they're two the two things speak to each other but there are as mary says i guess ways that they they pull apart yeah,
0: yeah i mean one so one thing that i did um one, one thing that sort of like jumped out at me is that obviously me methodology aside but um, you know there was uh, I think you know the sort of authors of the reports highlighted the headlines that students are splitting their time between different demands so like more care and responsibilities and taking up paid work and I felt you know these are sort of like framed automatically negatively Um, but when I think of the belonging work you know this can actually be read in a different way so for example students reporting more care and responsibilities could actually be indicative of successful widening access programs um and obviously with the caveat that success needs to come alongside enhanced support for the demographics that have enrolled um like you know deadline flexibility and library opening hours and that sort of thing um but particularly in terms of paid work you know the the big assumption that i've sort of seen is that uh it's the cost of living that's driving students to taking up work that they wouldn't normally do um which you know is is a completely reasonable um sort of hypothesis, but it can also be indicative of widened access, so things like mature students returning to education but wanting to keep working and um when Jim broke down the demographic figures, he found that the jump of participants from how many were under 22 in previous years to how many were being surveyed above the age of 22 so mature student upon enrollment um, had increased significantly um, so it's not necessarily that it's just school leavers facing the cost of living it could be that there are other people with um, employment um that they want to like retain while studying or it could just be that a lot of jobs are now available to work remotely because of pivots made during the pandemic so it is just easier for students to pick up paid work from home where you can make a bit of money um you know that's certainly conversations that I was having with students in the belonging work where they where they were saying like well if it's a case of working from home for a couple of hours of my choice during the week rather than giving up Saturday night to go work in a bar they're more likely to engage with that kind of paid employment and I'm not at all trying to downplay the cost of living like there's been you know a cursory search and you can find how difficult it is for students but I do think that there are different narratives that we need to explore and and not automatically make this sort of knee-jerk assumption that because um, it's, kind of, it's kind of the Rishi Sunak line, right? It's like, oh, well, you know, the cost of living, the war in Ukraine and Brexit, it's, you know, that's what it is and the pandemic. And it's like, actually, I think I think there are a little bit more interesting things going on here and it's only by sort of slowing down a little bit and thinking uh, from a student, perspe- student in 2023's perspective that we can, one, begin to understand what's going on, but two, understand... What support is needed, and if indeed that support is needed, because obviously you know providing support is expensive, it's time consuming, and you want to make sure that that's going into the right places. So, yeah, quite a lot going on, and um, but but like I said, co- conversations and and, and quantitative um, a, a, sorry qualitative um as, aspects needed to this.
2: I, th- I think both Sunday and Mary are right, and and I recall that when we did the the, the UPPS student future thing, there was absolutely. Uh, this desire for co-creation and, and people talk a lot about survey fatigue and, you know, constantly consulting students, but but in a fairly perfunctory way or in a way that really seeks to justify decisions that people want to make anyway. And that there is a danger, um, <laughs> he says, as somebody who runs a lot of surveys and polling, there's a danger of overuse of data here uh, and, and and a sort of slew of numbers. And, you know, you can't move in university central services in a moment without a slew of data and student analytics and machine learning and everything else that consultancies sell to you. That, 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 in a sense, you can you can kind of get yourself paralyzed by data slightly. So I completely agree that there's no substitute for for co-creation and more sort of engaged qualitative work to really try and understand what is going on. I think the, the the point about the changing world of work is really interesting and and we see this quite a lot in the in the broader education sector, that actually this is starting to affect staff as well. So one of the things that's really interesting and is starting to happen is that um particularly women who want to work in term time, who might in previous years have become things like teaching assistants are now not becoming teaching assistants because they can earn just as much money working remotely during term time between the hours of nine and three and then they can pick up their kids so there is definitely something about the accessibility of work which is you know reasonably well paid and non-physical labor that actually does now make it quite attractive to students and indeed some adults in the workplace as well
5: yeah i just wanted to add mark i mean you could You could say that uh, if these positive results are real, that uh, maybe that's a, an impact of the of the regulatory regime, um which is putting more emphasis on at least you know people staying in higher education and and uh, you know going on to graduate employment. but what one of the things that really worries me about all of this is you know student engagement um whatever view you take of what that consists of is clearly really, really important to the success of higher education. Um, and but the fact is it, it costs money. and you know going back to our previous conversation about fees and funding and so on, but with the, the unit of resource just you know being leached away through high inflation and higher staff costs and so on, um, I do just wonder where this is all going to go in the next two or three years and fees in england are frozen aren't they till 2025 at at the least and i just wonder that um you know the obvious areas to cut back on is going to be broadly in kind of student support and student engagement and i think it would be you know it would just be a huge detriment to the whole sector and and particularly to students who undoubtedly are still feeling the the sort of hangover from the pandemic in terms of low confidence and and perhaps less willingness to engage because they're nervous about it and don't quite know how to um so yeah i hope i hope this is true um because it would be fantastic if if things were bouncing back but uh, i i don't feel a huge amount of confidence in the picture that's painted here i must say
4: if you like research into what's going on with students and their lives come along to the secret life of students next month in london my colleague
1: jim is here to tell us all about it hi it's jim from the team here with news of the secret life of students back for its fourth year we're going to take the opportunity to get real about students bringing together sector leaders and managers as well as student leaders and students union managers to get an accurate and unvarnished picture of the student condition in 2023 so we can work out how to respond rather than just react Shifting from a surface-level understanding of student satisfaction with services to a deeper understanding of their motivations, ambitions and lives can be hugely rewarding and important both for them and those supporting them. It's also vital in an age that seems quick to assume, judge and condemn students rather than listen, understand and act on their concerns. So at the event, we'll be asking questions like what are students doing when they're not in the classroom? Where is the line between their desire to collaborate and regulations that ban collusion? Is it true they're not prepared to debate and discuss controversial issues? Why do they rate assessment and feedback so badly on the NSS? And how many are confident about being real students, let alone what comes next? On the day, we'll feature key findings into the student experience from the past year. We'll launch exciting new research into the student learning experience beyond the classroom. And we'll launch our new student insights platform, Belong, a Wonky Group GTI initiative. And we'll share the first findings from its research. It's an essential event for anyone working on policy and delivery for students. That's the secret life of students. London, March the 14th. We'd love to see you there. Go to wonky.com forward slash events and Book
4: now. Now, uh, ADCAS has a report out about uh, the benefits of the graduate route. Sunday, walk us through it.
0: Right, yeah. So this is the graduate route for international students to remain in the UK uh, to work two years after they have finished their study, or three years for PhD students. And it has been uh, repeatedly rumoured to be facing the ire of the Home Office um, with sort of brief into the press that Suela Braverman would like to cut the period down to six months. Um ACAST has uh a new report uh t- today with an accompanying blog on wonky Uh and this is making the case for the benefits of the graduate route and actually asking that it should be extended rather than reduced. Um the report is based on a uh, survey of focus group data from international graduates who are seeking employment in the UK, um, and it identifies um, barriers that are currently uh, preventing international students from transitioning, transitioning to work in the UK. So things like um, employer retin- reticence, uh, lack of information and visa costs, and um, and it also urges uh universities to communicate more clearly with um international students about the route so that they are aware of it um and also work more closely with employers so so they also um understand it as an option
4: right, so I guess that this important but that I guess what's concerned the sector is how much of this type of stuff is on the table currently in Westminster
2: yeah, i mean it, it, from the sector's perspective. There's, as Sunday said, there's a lot of briefing going around about, is there going to be a crackdown on dependents? Is there going to be a crackdown on post-study work visa? Is there going to be just a general crackdown on the amount of CASs issued and the amount of numbers of of, of international students you can take? And the post-study work visa has been one of the things which uh, the sector, and indeed, sort of broadly... Uh, sort of pro-growth people on the right have been arguing for 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 some time, and it was it was it was a big win when it was uh, was actually reintroduced uh, a few years ago. One of the things that I think is so interesting about the survey, and I was reflecting on this from the perspective of, of of you know a small employer, is that I just think the two-year mark isn't quite enough because. I think the survey shows us a couple of things really interestingly. One is, of course, the incentive or the encouragement that universities get to switch students onto graduates a few months before they graduate. At which point, it's not a two-year work visa; it's an eighteen-month or nineteen-month visa. Then, of course, it assumes that you can get a job on day one after you graduate. Whereas, actually, in reality, if you're looking for let's say two or three months beforehand, now you're down to to, to just over twelve months. And I would I would have a lot of concerns as an employer taking on somebody who had 12 months left of a visa um even if i sort of understood the system and i knew the possibility of switching them across and so on and so forth i think even just an extension to three years so that in effect most of the people you would be taking on have at least a two-year run would make a huge amount of difference because you know the junior the junior people in our office you sort of tend to expect more or less they'll stay for about two years and then move on anyway so i think just a simple tweak like that would as well as some of the other things they suggest in the survey like adding on the amount of sort of spare student time onto the end of your graduate visa small tweaks like that i don't think would necessarily increase the numbers hugely of people staying but would just make it actually slightly more impactful in the way that people hoped it would be
4: um and i mean mary there's obviously more that USC should be doing with employers right
5: yeah i think so i i I was just going to add that i think i can't remember which countries have moved to, to three years from two years but the length of the work visa post graduation is a is a kind of competitive advantage in international recruitment um, that is being wheeled out in in competitor destinations for higher education, and yeah, it just seems daft that uh, that we might be moving in the opposite direction. And of course, I think there has been more narrative recently about the extent to which international fees as uh, um subsidize both research and increasingly um the kind of domestic fee deficit um which i think is helpful for a government that presumably doesn't want to put more more money into um uh, the the tuition fee loan uh, in england and you know maybe in other countries as well but you're quite right i think um we just, we just need to do much more to promote this talent pipeline to employers. We know we've got these huge skill gaps and not all in kind of very highly skilled areas. Things like marketing and communications have got big skills gap. Um, and giving employers the information that they can do this and that it's relatively easy and indeed that they could start the recruitment process alongside other graduate recruitment so you don't get that kind of gap between um, the student visa and the work visa um, you know, just to, just to give them confidence to use international graduates as a source of skills and talent, I think uh, it's kind of a, no, a no-brainer to me. I was also just going to mention, because I collaborate with a small group of new providers, um, and there is a glaring anomaly in the system that assumes that all new providers are operating under some kind of franchise or validation arrangement with, with a university, the, the providers that I work with have got their own degree awarding powers, often end up new, new degree awarding powers. But for them, the Home Office requires that they provide a four-year track record of student visa compliance before they can avail themselves of the, the graduate work visas. But of course, they can't recruit international students without those privileges or not easily. So it's impossible for them to demonstrate the track record, which um, seems daft. And there's another way that Life has made very, very difficult for high-quality new providers.
4: So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on walkie.com. Don't forget, you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Walkie Show, wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Jonathan, Mary Sunday, and our news editor, Michael Salmon, who makes the show happen behind the scenes. We'll be back next week. Jim will be here in the meantime. Stay warm.